0: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey everyone, and welcome to season 2 of Quit Your Day Job. I am your host, Alicia Fernandez Miranda. Have I brushed my hair today? I'm not telling, but probably not. This podcast is all about dream jobs, the ones you wished you had when you were a kid and the ones you pin up on your vision board. I decided to chase after my own in 2020 by taking a series of unpaid internships. I quit my job as CEO of a philanthropy consulting business to try my hand working on Broadway, in fitness, as an art dealer, and in a hotel. And then I wrote a book about it, My What If Year is Coming from Zibby Books in February 2023. I am obsessed with the idea that you can turn your passion into your career and that it's never too late to make your dream a reality. So before you decide to quit your day job, listen to my guests as they offer a glimpse into what their worlds are really like behind the scenes. Welcome to Quit Your Day Job. We have today possibly the dreamiest of all the dream jobs that I have interviewed so far on this podcast, which I know I probably said already, but I really think that this one is it. Um, And I'm so delighted to introduce you to Maisie Wilhelm, who is the founder of Palatine, a culinary concierge that connects people with memorable food experiences. Maisie creates and leads culinary adventures for vacationers and culinary professionals in Europe and consults on a range of projects, from helping chef Jose Andres relieve hunger through World Central Kitchen to stocking Gastro Obscura's world's most unusual vending machine with what is a question we might need to ask Maisie. (laughs) Everything she does centers around food and our experiences of it. Maisie was born in Flint, Michigan, graduated from Brown University with a BA in Italian Studies, learned French while working in Paris at the International Herald Tribune, and worked for Michelin-starred chef Daniel Boulou for many years before starting her own company. She lives between New York City, LA, and Europe. And I mean, it sounds like a dream job, truly, truly. So Maisie, welcome (laughs) to the podcast and thank you for being on today. Thank you. It's my sincere pleasure to be here. And um, we like to do a little bit of a warm-up here. Um, And so I was thinking about your warm-up as a very selfish excuse to essentially get some free travel consulting from you because (laughs) (laughs) my question that I have posed to you is your top five spots on your travel to-do list. So um, Mm. I have, uh, as I was telling you before we hopped on this call, I've been following your Instagram and Palatine's Instagram. I salivate over every single post. I want to go everywhere, but I want to know where you want to go next.
1: That's a great question. So part of the blessing and curse of my work focusing on Europe is that I always want to go back to France and Italy (laughs) because I love both those countries so much. There are two places in Italy that I haven't been to yet that I get a lot of requests about. So I should go to the Lake Como area and the Mm. Amalfi coast. I need to explore both a little bit more in depth. Um, so those are two on the list for sure. Uh, I'd also, I'd like to go back to Mexico city. I haven't been there since I was a kid Um, And in particular, the Luis Barragan house is um, something I'd love to see. Um, I remember as a kid going to Cuernavaca and visiting the Robert Brady Museum, which is another house that was turned into uh, uh, a visitor center essentially with incredible art. And so I really, I, I love that experience after doing some solo travel in Scotland this spring, um, where I visited for the first time, I rediscovered the joys of seeing new places. Mm. So, um, Iceland is on my list for this year, hopefully. Um, and I think you know I, I haven't been to, I haven't been to many places in the Far East, but um, I love the food of Thailand, and mm. I'd like to explore that. So, Chiang Mai area would be also on the list.
0: Oh, taking diligent notes and full of wanderlust. <laughs> I have a long planned trip to Thailand that has gotten sidelined since 2020 that I swear one day I'm going to do. But already my kids are like in a different price bracket now from when we booked the original <laughs> trip. So yeah, things but change. One day, one day I'm going to make it there. That all sounds delectable and um, just truly wonderful. What was the last place you visited most recently? just got
1: back from two months in Europe. Um, I did mostly France, but I was in Scotland for two weeks, Isle of Skye, Edinburgh, Inverness, Aberdeen, Greymar, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then uh, Venice. I was in Venice for the first time in about 20 years, which was a kind of an incredible delight to, to see that city again and realize yet again, wow, this is a city built on water. It is so
0: incredible and it never ceases to amaze. And then the food, the food was incredible. Oh, the food. I, yeah, I went to Venice last in 2005, probably. Um, Mm -hmm. On a real tight student budget. So um, I dream of going back there this year. And so we were reintroduced recently by our mutual friend. I started following you on Instagram. And um, I now follow the woman that you were touring around Venice with. Like I just, I've gotten Venice (laughs) in my head. So PSA to everybody listening, if you would like to go to Venice with me this year, I am up for it. It's a short haul for me. So I'm so yeah, there. And
1: I, can, I can create your itinerary, your food itinerary.
0: Oh my God, this sounds amazing. So that is actually a perfect segue, Maisie, into my first question, which is, what is a culinary concierge? And tell me about what you do at Palatine.
1: That is an excellent question. Um, and it makes total sense that you'd have that question because a culinary concierge is something that I made up. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> When I I started my own company three and a half years ago, um, shortly before the pandemic, and my goal was to spend more time in Europe. Um, I speak French and Italian, and I I wanted to reconnect, especially with the Italian um, part of my skill set, and everything I had been doing up to that point was in the food world, um, in recent years, I should say. I did start my career in journalism. Um, but I'd been working for the Michelin-starred chef, Danielle Belou for many years, first as his assistant and then as his brand manager. And then I um, went to work for a company called Goldbelly for a couple of years, shipping online perishable food. Um, and then I decided I wanted to do a bunch of different projects. And the culinary concierge seemed to be a sort of catch-all phrase that uh, translated or that communicated a little bit of what i what i do what i focus on so i say a culinary concierge is a consulting business that helps you connect to food in a memorable way, whether that's on a vacation when you want to have epic food experiences, you want to eat at all of the right places, whether you're culinary professionals and you want to do an R and D trip and um, really get to the bottom of the food in a certain area. So you really understand it, take inspiration back home to influence your menus. Um, And then I do a whole slew of projects that are for companies who are related to food in some way and need to connect with people. So uh, as you mentioned in my bio, I'm working with Jose Andres and World Central Kitchen, his not-for-profit, on an activation that started in the New York area during COVID and has continued even until today. So it's basically project management, but I'm helping connect Restaurants with people in need, and we facilitate around at this point right around three thousand meals a week getting into the hands of wow. people who are struggling. Um, but then I also will do something like I helped Netflix cast one of their culinary competition shows, finding chef candidates from all over the world. So it's a it's a big gamut oh my god of that's things. so cool. <laughs> yeah it's um you know I'm very well connected with lots of different people in the food world based on my seven years working for this top chef um, and traveling a lot with him. And, uh, you know, everybody came through that office, whether you were an up and coming cook or, you know, one of the OG Michelin starred chefs or a farmer or food media. So when I left that company, I realized I had a really strong Rolodex and it seemed like that was worth something somehow. And Mm. so a lot of what I do is connecting the people that I know in some way that's beneficial to them. Um, So I've been contacted by different brands to help on different cool projects in the food world, like the world's most unusual vending machine for um, Gastro Obscura, which is a website that launched a a really cool book and they were celebrating that. And this was sort of a, not a PR stunt, but they, they wanted to... Pop up a vending machine in a few different places and have it sell some really quirky, unusual
0: foods. You have to tell me what was in the vending machine. (laughs)
1: Let's see, we had um, Rwandan chili oil, an Akabanga chili oil. Cool. There was canned bread from New England. We had, you'll recognize this, uh, an orange-colored soda called Iron Brew. Oh, indeed. Scotland's (laughs) second official national beverage after whiskey, of course. Of course. Um, Pink champagne biscuits from Paris. Uh, What else do we have? Oh, we had butterfly pea flower powder, which is dried Thai flowers, blue flowers that, um, when you add to water, they make it, uh, a blue. And if you add an acid to it, like lemon juice, it turns purple. Oh. And so you can kind of play with this going back and forth, add water, add lemon, add water, add acid, and kind of come up with really cool cocktails or desserts. And it's a, it's a colorant that, um, doesn't have much flavor, but it's really fun. You've seen a lot of desserts and, and drinks. So it was just a it was a really fun, um quirky project and just great to work on and and a great way to tap into my varied uh experiences of of the food of the world.
0: How do you decide what projects to take on? Are you at a stage in your business where you're kind of taking on everything? Is it based on just what you're interested in? Like how do you because super different, you know, types of work.
1: Totally. Um I definitely, when I started out, it was kind of like, let me, let me just, uh, well, I had to say yes to everything. Mm. Um, I started out without a business plan, without any savings, really kind of, I took a leap of faith. I had a couple things lined up and I just had to believe that um, I could continue um, and so far, I haven't looked back, which knock on wood, I feel very fortunate about. But I'm, I'm a little bit in the phase of saying yes to most things that come my way, but not all. And one of the things that I've done is I've sort of set my um, my pricing at a place where I'll say yes, but it's really got to be worth my while at this yeah. point. So not everybody will come back to me and say, great, let's move forward. Um, and I'm I'm okay with that because I've learned how to sort of value uh, my services a little bit better.
0: I think that's amazing, actually, that you have done that relatively early in your business journey because it's the one thing I hear from so many, particularly women, not all women, but definitely a lot of women, about saying yes to stuff for free or, you know, you trying to be cut, being cut down on price. And I think knowing your value is so incredibly important when you've got a skill like this that you are bringing to people. No matter what skill you have, I think that's a really essential lesson.
1: And I, um, I always tell people, especially young women or women of any age to read a book called ask for it, which is a quick read. sort of like a self-help book, but it really inspired me to be a stronger negotiator Mm. um, or to be a negotiator. And he was young, he was retired in his mid forties and he had been a, a photographer And he uh, went to work for a large corporation, like their in-house international photographer. And he told me, and I asked him, the secret to his success was to work for the devil, as he put it, you know, Mm -hmm. sort of corporate America and double your price until they say no.
0: Oh my God. I kind of love that.
1: (laughs) I thought that was genius. And this is a guy who, you know, owned a house in Montauk and had an apartment in Brooklyn and he was 45.
0: So take note, everybody. I'll take it. Um, I'll take it. Yeah. Um, that's amazing. Now, were you always into food? Like as a child, were you really into food? What did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be a
1: writer from about the time I was in high school and that's why I set out to have a career in journalism. Um, but I went to Italy for my junior year abroad. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'd always been interested in food. I like to eat. Um, we're a family that grew up basically with craft Singles and Pop-Tarts and same, Wonder Bread. Same, same, same and we would have filet mignon and I knew how to behave in a high-end restaurant. And um, so I think I was sort of primed to understand what good food was. Um, And then when I spent my year living in Italy as a student, uh, the secret about Italian university is that attendance is not required. Oh my God. (laughs) They give you a syllabus, you have to read all of the books and then you have one oral exam at the end of the year. But what that meant was we had a lot of free time to walk around Bologna, Italy, where I was living and the markets there are incredible. And we all lived with Italians and we learned how to cook and we would spend time making meals together and eating and then traveling around and trying other Other foods in other regions. And I really fell in love with food on that trip. And then shortly after, I moved to Paris when I graduated from college um, because I wanted to have a similar experience in Paris like I did in Italy and learn French this time. And I worked as an editorial assistant at a newspaper, but I became friends with a French woman who was also a, a cook, a chef, and she really taught me how to cook and how to think about food. And I remember going to her house once and she, she tasked me with making the vinaigrette and we were like a ranch dressing house growing right. up. So uh, and my mom doesn't even like olive oil, but I, I discovered it. I loved it, but I didn't feel really comfortable using it or certainly making even a vinaigrette at that point. And I kind of, you know, I put in some oil, I put in some vinegar, some salt, some mustard. And, and I said, is this, is this done? Is this okay? And she looked at me and she said, well, taste it. Do you like it? If not, keep going, you know? Yeah. And I just thought, oh yeah, that's a really interesting approach to food. And when she she had such an incredible wine knowledge. And I said, I really want to know more about wine like you do. And she said, well, you just need to drink more of it.
0: That <laughs> so, sounds like great advice.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I, I definitely, um, we weren't a food obsessed family growing up, but I, I always loved to eat.
0: Get your first month free at GreenLight.com slash ACAST. That's GreenLight.com slash ACAST. I love that. And did you, when you were making the change from journalism kind of into the food industry, I'm really interested in those transition points in people's life. Did it feel kind of organic, like this was just the next logical step for you? Not at all.
1: I was in journalism for three years in Paris as an assistant. And then I moved to New York city because my visa was up and I got a job as a reporter, um, at a fashion publication in New York and I hated it and I was bad at it. And I was not a hard news reporter. I could write features, but it was not a good fit for me. Mm. And I was sort of, um, not I wasn't fired, but I was basically sort of shown the door. Like right. they said basically, you should quit, because if you don't, we're gonna have to let you go. <laughs> um, but they that allowed me to collect unemployment. And I uh had to figure out what my next step was. And I was looking for something that was like a personal assistant to somebody important because I had done that a bit in Paris and I had learned a lot. Um, about the field I was working in. And I knew if I could find some, some job like that, working for someone at the top of their field, I could learn a lot about the industry. But I was also sort of of intrigued by the food world, which this was early, this was like late 2009. And it was sort of becoming a thing. The food Mm. world was, was evolving into something where like, if you weren't wanting to be a chef or work in a restaurant, there still might be something you could do. And so I was looking for something maybe in the back office of some food company um, or a personal assistant job. And I looked on Craigslist and I found a post that said personal assistant to chef Danielle Ballou. And I was like, wait, what is this, is this <laughs> happening? <laughs> is this real? Yeah. Um, and I got really lucky. My, my background fit the,
0: uh, fit what they were looking for. You just decide that this is a world you love. Like you, did you love the food industry, the food world kind of right away?
1: Pretty, pretty much. I had read a book by Bill Buford called Heat, which very, in a very evocative way, sort of pulls back the curtain on what it's like to work in a high, high energy, high impact kitchen. And, um, I remember walking into the kitchen at restaurant, Danielle, the three mission star restaurant at the time where my office was, Um, which was in a tiny little room overlooking the kitchen. Mm -hmm. And I was struck with, you know, all of the shiny uh, cloche, those silver domes that they put over food to keep it warm as it's going out into the dining room, which were all strung up in a row and the gleaming copper and the crisp white chef coats. Everyone was, excuse me, everyone was wearing, um, I loved it. I loved being able to watch what the chefs were doing. Um, I learned a lot of little techniques working in the kitchen, you know, how to clean mushrooms, how to cook a lobster because I just saw things and I asked questions. So being in that, um, high level, I mean, the three Michelin star restaurant is unlike any other kind of restaurant and Mm. the attention to detail and the creation of the dishes and the artistry and, and all of the little things that go on behind the scenes that they don't want the diners to ever have to even think about, but that w- which make your experience really incredible. I just lapped all of that up and, um, and I ate a, an incredible amount of this exquisite food mm. and working in what we call the skybox, um, with chef Danielle right by my side meant that anytime a chef had a new dish on the menu, they would run it up for him to taste. He would take a bite, he'd talk about it, and then he'd pass the plate to me essentially. And oh I Oh my God, that's well. the dream. <laughs> Yeah. And there are also, you know, wines that the, the sommeliers would open. And, and if it was a really incredible bottle, they'd pour a little glass for him and he would taste it and maybe sometimes leave me the rest. And so I really <laughs> expanded my palate uh, in that time period and um, was incredibly spoiled. I should also say that the hospitality industry is extremely warm and welcoming. I mean, these are people who they have dedicated their life to making you feel warm and welcome, good, and giving you delicious things to eat and drink. And those are really fun people to be around. I bet. I bet. (laughs) There's this sort of um, favor economy or a sort of, I'll take care of you, you take care of me nature to this industry and that meant that when I went to someone's restaurant if they knew that I worked for Danielle they would bring me something extra or start me off with a free glass of champagne or comp my meal in some cases um, because they knew that I could do the same when they came into one of his restaurants I mean I didn't have privileges to comp meals but um, I could let the team know hey this person is the chef at so-and-so restaurant and they would Go out of their way to make that person comfortable. So I was extremely lucky and ate many, many meals that I wasn't able to afford um, and gained my sort of culinary knowledge in large part through that experience.
0: So fabulous. When I worked at a pub in Leicester Square, which was my main exposure to hospitality before the internship I did um, at Kinluck Lodge on the Isle of Skye when I was writing my book, uh, I would give people free uh, Smirnoff ices. And then in exchange, we would get into the nightclubs after 2 a.m. Uh, in Leicester Square for free. So I definitely see you know that. It. Tit for tat experience. I was not getting extremely nice wine or five star meals, but it sure was fantastic. So I just, I love that. Yeah. And you've got there, okay, there's got to be something bad about this job because I'm now rethinking all my life choices and wondering if I should just come <laughs> work for you.
1: <laughs> well, Um, let's see. I mean, I'm on the go a lot. So basically just the the overarching, um, work that I do kind of has two main prongs. There's the consulting prong, which is what keeps the lights on. Um, and there's the more lucrative work. And then there's the food tours and the culinary itinerary creation and bringing people to Europe or sending them to Europe to eat really well. And that's really fun. Um, it's, it's starting to pay a little bit better. Um, I had a real interruption in service due to the pandemic, mm. but things are picking back up. And, um, and so the, you know, the consulting work on one side is pretty standard, basic consulting work. I, I I work from home right now, I, I I don't have any employees, it's just me. Um, and then the food tour stuff is extremely intensive when I am present and leading a tour. Hmm. And I just did three tours pretty much back to back and it was so exhausting. And I felt very, very ready to come home at the end of my time. And you know you're on the go a lot when you're doing those tours. So you're disconnected from your family and from your friends. i'm I'm lucky because the places that I tour are countries that I've both lived in, and I have friends who live in those places still, and I'm able to connect with those people and so I don't feel too lonely. but um, you know yeah, it does definitely interrupt your life when you have to up and and head to Europe for.
0: a long stretch. Yeah. Still not selling me on not trying to come (laughs) work for you, but I do appreciate your transparency with that answer. Um, tell me like what, what is an average day? Like, uh, let's say an average day of client work and then maybe an average day when you're on a trip with a client or with a, with a kind of traveler client.
1: So, um, an average day consulting is basically, At my desk, at my computer, on the phone, um, researching things on the internet, uh, talking to people, working, you know, a lot of the consulting that I do, frankly, it's new to me because Mm. I don't have a background as a as a marketer, as a consultant, but, um, I am able to do the stuff that I'm asked to do and I know I can figure it out. So sometimes I'm researching, like, how do I put together a digital brand strategy? <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, I've never seen one before, you know, I just didn't have those kinds of experiences, but, um, I have, I think really good instincts and, um, And I'm smart and capable and that goes a long way, you know, and and knowing and believing that I can figure it out. So um, there's a fair amount of, of unglamorous computer work, which sometimes I do from a cafe or a co-working space um, to, to lighten things up. And also I really appreciate the exchange that happens between other people who work for themselves when they're in the same environment. So yeah. I have a few friends that I connect with regularly, either in person or by phone, who are also running their own consulting businesses and are still just a one person shop. And that network has been very fruitful, not only as support and encouragement, but, um, for passing work to each other. Yeah. So Um, that's sort of a typical day as a consultant. Um, and then as a food guide, oh man, it's intense. Mm -hmm. I'll be up early. I will be both. I mean, if I'm in touring mode, I have to take the group around. I have to, um, tell them what we're doing, get them safely from A to B walking around Paris, for instance, or getting on the Metro. And there's a lot of, um, group tour dynamics that I'm responsible for. Meaning like just the logistics of, Hey, if you've never ridden the subway in Paris before, here's some etiquette you have to keep in mind and here's your ticket and you have to hang on to it. And, um, you know, just literally shuttling people around. Um, and then I'm constantly planning next day's activity. Well, I'm reconfirming the next day's activities because a lot of this stuff has to be reconfirmed just 24 hours or two days before. So I'm always calling people to say, yep, in two days we'll be there for lunch, or we're going to come by your shop and have the baguette making lesson or whatever it may be. And then I'm facilitating the experience for people on the ground. So really, um, either translating or drawing out the sort of reticent food person that we're talking to, to get them to explain to the guests why this charcuterie is so amazing and what's special about it and that sort of thing. So, um, it's a lot of full on work when you're on the tour.
0: Yeah. of yeah, course. I mean, you're performing right the whole time. Yes.
1: You're on 100% of the time. And, um, and depending on the group, you know, it can be, it can be different. Um, I like the shorter trips lift people closer to my age the best because it's just a little easier, mm. but the tours with older folks, um, can be very rewarding as well. Um, but they definitely, you know, depending on the group, it can require a lot of, a lot of small talk, a lot of, um, a lot of energy yeah. all the time. Um, so yeah, it can be, it's incredibly exhausting and it can be difficult to do anything else when I'm in tour mode. So I have to really carefully plan my tours and my consulting work so that I'm able to do it all.
0: Yeah. I can see that. Oh, wow. So what's next for, uh, for you more of the, more of this, are you looking to grow in different directions? Like what's on the horizon?
1: That's, I'm at a really sort of a in, um, big inflection point right now. And I'm mulling over all of these questions. I feel mm. like it's time for me to kick it into the high gear Mm -hmm. and, um, in, in either direction, but I sort of feel like I need to pick if I'm going to focus more on the tours and make that more of a serious area of focus, or if I'm going to try to build the consulting work a little bit more robustly. And, and frankly, I can't decide. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just going to do both <laughs> for a, at least a little bit longer. Um, hopefully not drive myself too crazy. No, I discovered that, uh, leading tours for professional people has been really rewarding, like culinary yeah. professionals, um, industry people, because they, I can speak their language and I know what they need to get out of a tour. And I, it's also more fun to bring culinary professionals, to visit other culinary professionals. Yeah, they like bet. to talk to each other and connect. So I'm leaning into that line of the, the business a little bit more and a little bit less from uh, a little bit more away from the sort of one off, like, Hey, can you help me get into X restaurant when I'm in Paris or yeah. whatnot? Um, and, uh, and I'm, I realized that, you know, I've got these great lists of where people can eat when they're going places. And I, Sell the the content to people and let them do the planning, which has seemed to be a much better, yeah, it's a much better, um, balance of the workload in a way that makes much more sense. Meaning, you know, if you are planning your trip or you're going someplace, you may want somebody else to have done the research to tell you, like, if you go to any of these places on this list, you're going to get a great meal. But you want to figure out like what works in your schedule and maybe you want to change a reservation last minute. And that's hard for me to do if I'm in the States. Yeah. So I let people do that part of it, but give them the
0: ideas and the, the content. Oh my God. I love that. Do you have one of those for Vienna? <laughs> I'm actively for Vienna? looking for places to eat in Vienna. Yes. Oh, Vienna. I
1: don't, but. I know somebody who does, and that's been also a big part of what I do is is having these connections with people who are sort of like me but experts in other areas. So I will send
0: you the video. TBD.
1: Also, I'll eat
0: six meals a day and then report back on what was delicious while I. I love it. Early dinner, late dinner. Yeah. First breakfast, second breakfast, just like just like hobbits, (laughs) just like hobbits, we follow that schedule. Um, Maisie, this has been amazing. You have uh, very not not been successful in convincing me to keep all of my current jobs because I really just (laughs) kind of want to do this one. But maybe that will be my fifties career. We'll see how we go. Um, Yeah, I think a lot of people love food, love travel. Maybe love it as a hobby, don't know how to make it into something that they could actually turn into a career. Um, and yeah. I always like to finish up with what advice you might have for people who are trying to take one of these passions and turn it into something they can actually make money out of.
1: So this is hokey, but. Say it I anyway. Saw <laughs> it written on like a pillow somewhere, and it said go everywhere, eat everything, talk to everyone. And I really think that's great advice, no matter kind of what field you're in. Although particularly if you are into food and travel, um, you have to have a, an open attitude and a curious attitude, and want to learn and want to connect with people. And through that attitude uh, with which I've gone through life for you know my adult life, um, I have been rewarded time and time again with things kind of coming back to me or serendipitous things happening because I'm striking up the conversation with somebody next to me. And I think that especially in today's modern uh, technological era, people are much more afraid to do that. And it's a shame because you're you're missing out on a lot of opportunities um, if you're just stuck in your phone looking down at uh, Instagram all the time.
0: I love it. And you really strike me as someone who is very open and that that has just paid dividends uh, in so many ways for you. So Thank I you. am delighted. Um, Maisie, where can people learn more about you or find your work online? Sure. My Instagram is Maisie Wilhelm.
1: Uh, and then I also have the Palatine Instagram, which is Palatine and then underscore, underscore. And um, You'll see a lot of visual inspiration on both of those. Um, One has a few more pictures of my dog and my
0: niece and nephews, but
1: (laughs) uh, or the website peloton.co.
0: Amazing. And I'm going to put a PSA, don't look at it when you're hungry because (laughs) it will only make you hungrier. Um, Maisie, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. And expect my job application coming your way very soon. Please. I hope we get to travel together and eat some great things soon. I think it's going to happen. Have a great day. Thanks a lot. You too, Alicia. Thank you so much for listening to Quit Your Day Job. We are a Zcast production and want to send huge thanks to the whole Zippy Books team for their support. You can find me on Instagram at Alicia F. Miranda. I would love to hear what you thought about this episode, any others, future jobs you want me to interview, or burning questions you think I should ask my upcoming guests. And if you decide to quit your day job, let me know that too.